God, we thank you for uh, Sunday morning and a chance for us to gather uh, as the people of God. Lord, we are excited to be here. Some of us have had uh, smooth weeks, good weekends, and yet others of us come in tired um, or dry. Um, Some of us have walked through uh, brokenness this week and just feel like it's just been a desert. And so, Lord, we we pray as as we gather in this moment under your word, Lord, that you would renew awe and wonder in our hearts. God, I pray that you would, Lord, just show us the beauty of Jesus in this passage. Lord, help us to uh, cut through maybe the familiarity of this passage and to, and to come to it with fresh eyes. Lord, I pray that you would use your spirit to just make plain what you have to say in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we pick up our study in the Gospel of John in one of the most significant transitions in the entire book. Chapters 1 through 12 of John, uh, he deals with about uh, three years of Jesus' public ministry. That ministry was public-facing. It was really towards uh, the Jews. And now as he gets into chapters 13 through 21, uh, John, the author, is only dealing with about a a couple of days uh, for Jesus as he's uh, about to ascend back up to heaven. And so John is is about to slow down the pace for us because he doesn't want us to miss the significance of what is about to happen. In fact, this pace is so slow, uh, it kind of raises the question, why is he doing this? What what is he about to say that's so very significant? There are a couple things I want to point out. Um, that we're going to see over the next several weeks that I want you to, to, to catch them and grasp them. Uh, so let me just point them out here on the front end. First thing I want to point out is that the content in chapters 13 through 17 of John uh, do not show up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, these topics uh, that we're going to see over the next couple of chapters related to Christian service and brotherly love and uh, union with Jesus and uh, kind of a doctrine of heaven and the role of the Holy Spirit, all of those topics um, and the teachings that Jesus provides only show up here. And I think that's significant looking at how unique John's angle is. Another thing to point out is uh, there's going to be a a significant shift uh, from Jesus ministering to large crowds to the public to now really only ministering to the 12 disciples. And we're going to feel this in the sense of there aren't going to be any more public discourses, signs, and miracles, but what we're going to see and experience are these like slow-down conversations and teachings that Jesus provides uh, for the disciples. It's going to feel like we're in the living room with, uh, with Jesus, and he's just kind of teaching us as he teaches the disciples. It's going to be a really unique kind of feel over the next several weeks. And then the third thing to point out is I think we have to be aware of the dominant theme of love. Love has been touched on here and there in the first 12 chapters. It's occurred 12 different times. But chapters 13 through 21, it's going to show up over 45 times. We're going to find Jesus teaching on love. But maybe most importantly, we are also going to see powerful displays of love that Jesus kind of shows us throughout these last couple of chapters. This is the indispensable quality uh, of a true Christian, what it means to love uh, those around you. And this passage is is important for us. I'm excited to dive into it because this is the foundation of love. As Jesus kind of talks about what this looks like to love others, he's going to lay the groundwork here in our passage uh, today. 
In fact, this passage and this scene is so significant that one of the most well-known and widely recognized religious paintings of all time is da Vinci's The Last Supper. I'm sure you've seen um, this painting before uh, many times. I just want you to stop and just uh, ask yourself the question, what, what comes to your mind when you think about this painting? Like th- this painting is impacting you in some way. Maybe you'd ask it a different way. How is this painting, this masterpiece, shaping your theology, your interpretation of John chapter 13? Because it is. It is in, in maybe small ways that this, this is a beautiful masterpiece, and I don't want to dig at, at da Vinci here the whole time, but, but some of the things that you see up here aren't completely accurate to what's taking place in John chapter 13. For example, you'll notice the, the light that's kind of shining in from the windows in the back with kind of these rolling hills. That would not be the scene that was taking place in John chapter 13 in downtown Jerusalem. All right, this took place in a Thursday late evening, as was the tradition of celebrating the Passover. They, they celebrated that uh, officially on Saturday. This is Thursday evening in which they'd have a kind of a big supper or a big meal together. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. And so you wouldn't have light kind of coming in through uh, the window in that room. Another thing to point out is, and maybe it's hard for you to see this, but the bread there looks kind of fluffy. It's like French bread. They're also eating grilled uh, fish. That, that would not be the meal that they would partake in uh, right before the Passover. The Jews uh, would eat roasted lamb and unleavened bread, so not kind of fluffy bread, with bitter herbs. Another thing to point out that I think is, is also important is the seating assignments and the arrangement of the table and the chairs. Uh, this would not be uh, what it would look like in the first century. What they would have is, is a table that was shaped like a U that, that basically stood a foot off the ground. Okay, so they would basically be leaning on their side and basically leaning on a cushion and eating with, with the other hand, their feet extending away uh, from the table. Also, what you have is Jesus that, who's dead center right in the middle. That makes sense in kind of our Western culture as the place of honor. But the place of honor in the first century is actually the far left corner of, of that U on the U-shaped table. I'm pointing out some of these inaccuracies, not to, not to say you can never look at this painting again and, and, and be sinful, um, but, but to point out, I think, the danger that exists when we bring our own presuppositions into the Bible that are sometimes inaccurate, that actually shape our interpretation of it. All right, now this is just one example of looking at this painting and it's, and it's impacting how we interpret and read this passage. And we do this in dozens of ways, depending on, on the passage, depending on, on the word of God. And, and so, look, I know that for many of us, this passage is so familiar Like, you probably have read this dozens of times, but I want to challenge you this morning, as I've had to challenge my own heart preaching this, that don't allow the the familiarity of this passage or or your own presuppositions to automatically uh, interpret the passage, because maybe some of those presuppositions aren't completely accurate. I want to challenge you this morning to relinquish some of your um, you know, assumed cliches about this passage and don't allow just because you've read this a dozen times to automatically conclude that you've mastered this, right? That, that's always the challenge when we read scripture, like, oh yeah, Jesus is talking about washing feet, I need to be a good servant, like I've read that before, and we can automatically just step over here and say, therefore, I'm doing it perfectly, 
All right, so just the familiarity thing here, I think, can, can become um, kind of a, a barrier for us to understand what's really going on here. So I think Jesus is doing something here that is actually multi-layered. The, the, the main point of this passage is, is actually not a, an example for us to then go and imitate. There's something deeper going on that I want to unpack here that I think Jesus uh, is getting at. In fact, three things that we're going to see Jesus do and Jesus show us. Um, the first is maybe the obvious one, most obvious, and that is a humility that he displays. The humility displays. Again, this is on the surface of the text, probably the thing that jumps out to us most. This is kind of what we learn if, if you grew up in the church in children's ministry, that Jesus displays a kind of service that we are to go and do likewise. And at the very minimum, that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. But I want to point out that this is a multi-layered display of humility. All right, let me, let me kind of unpack that for a moment. Um, verse 1, um, if you just read these first couple verses like this, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, let's say you stop there and you skip all the way down to verse 4. Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and then washed his disciples' feet. If you cut out the second half of verse 1 and verses 2 and 3, you're going to miss several layers of significance that highlights the, the humility that Jesus displays. All right, let me point out a couple of these different layers. The first layer is to see that Jesus' humility is intimately connected to his mission, to his mission. We, we see this in verse 1 in particular where John points out that Jesus is very aware that his hour is near. Right, his hour of, of going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, that was his mission for coming. Jesus is aware that that is hours away. And so in this scene of serving and displaying humility, he is showing us that humility is actually at the heart of his, of his substitutionary death on the cross. In fact, Matthew kind of sums up Jesus' mission uh, this way, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? To give his, his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so we see Jesus' mission to, to serve others is by dying to self. And so what we see in this passage is actually a prophetic action that Jesus is displaying. That, that the water and, and the washing and, and the humility is actually pointing forward to something that's about to happen on the cross of Calvary. Right, it's a very important layer that we'll unpack in, in a moment here. The second layer of significance in Jesus' humility and something that should absolutely stun us is the fact that he was very aware that Judas is present. All right? And not only that Judas is present, but according to verse 2, he also knows that Judas is the one that's going to betray him. In fact, scholars believe that five days before the Last Supper, Judas had already met with those religious leaders had already made that transaction of 30 pieces of silver for kind of showing where Jesus uh, was. And so that plan was already in action. Now, I don't know about you, but I can stand up here and just transparently say, if I'm Jesus in this moment, I am not washing Judas's feet. Like, I, I'm skipping over him. Like, I, I might be doing something worse in that moment. Like, like th this is something that I probably would not have done. And yet, the heart of our Savior is one that is so humble and so outward focused that he serves and he washes the feet 
of even the one that's going to betray him. Look, the one who's very aware of his own divine royalty is the one whose heart is filled with such sacrificial love, even towards the most despicable and sinful. I think that adds a layer of of significance to the humility that Jesus is displaying. Here's another layer in verse 3. John just kind of throws this in here, but it's intentional. He talks about how uh, Jesus has been given all things by the Father, and that he's going to actually go back and ascend back up into heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's not like a throwaway verse. John is showing us kind of the complete magnitude of how low Jesus had to stoop in order to wash his disciples' feet. Like the one who has all authority, all power, all things have been given to him. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That same God is the one who's about to get on his knees and wash his disciples' feet. Like, are you tracking with how significant that is? Like, this is, this is the creator of the universe. He created the disciples. He created the water and the basin and the towel. He's giving the disciples air to breathe, and he's the one who's getting on his knees and, and washing their feet. This is an unbelievable display of, of our Lord and Savior, and it's meant to take our breath away. It's meant to, when we get to verses 4 and 5, where he rose from supper and he washes their feet, this is written in a way where we get to the end of verse 5, and we're almost meant to gasp out loud. Like, he did what? Like, the one who's been given all things, the one who, who's about to go to the cross and die for them, the, the one who's the betrayer is sitting right there, did what? Washed their feet. And look, sometimes it's hard for us because we live in, in 2019, and so there's, there's a cultural significance that we need to be aware of. In the first century here, the, the streets and, and the roads that they you know, walked up and down all day long were absolutely filthy. They, they were not clean a, at all. They, they had dirt. They had mud. Animals would walk up and down and kind of do their business, if you know what I mean. And, and so they're like walking in and through this, and they don't have the shoes that you and I wear today. The, the kind of footwear that they had are, are those, those uh, kind of gladiator-style uh, sandals that a lot of our women wear. They're kind of in style right now. That, that's the kind of like sh- uh, footwear that they, would, that they would wear. It was open-toed, and, and it just didn't keep the dirt and the mud and, uh, and the, the animal gifts um, off of their feet. And, and so they'd walk into a house, and if they were guests at a particular kind of dinner a party, like what we see here in John 13, there'd be a jar or a basin, and there'd be water there and a towel. And in some cases, you were to kind of wash your own feet before you partake in dinner. But most cases, there were servants there that, that would pour the water in the basin and that they would wash the feet of the guests. And yet when we get to John 13, that's not what we see happen. John 13, as the dinner, as the supper is, is taking place according to verse 4, Jesus is the one who's taking initiative. Jesus is the one who is assuming a type of role here that was reserved not even for the Jewish servants, but only for the Gentile servants. And he is assuming this role, almost degrading himself, counting others better than himself. 
This is, this is a startling scene for the disciples to experience, and, and it's also a powerful picture of the incarnation. You think about how Jesus rose from supper in a similar way that he rose from, from being in heaven in this perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit. As Jesus is pouring water into this basin, and he's about to clean the dirt off his disciples' feet, so too Jesus poured out his blood and cleaned the sin off of humanity. Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet, and he's going to presumably sit back down and finish supper. So too Jesus, after making purification of our sins, goes and sits at the right hand of the Father, according to Hebrews 1.3. So we see also kind of this picture of of Jesus' whole life and mission from birth until the resurrection. And it's a, a perfect embodiment of the passage of Scripture that Chloe read earlier in, in our service of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did exactly this in this passage. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus is putting on display here. Let me show you what this looks like right in this moment. Now, you have to wonder what the disciples were thinking. Like as they're kind of sitting there, they, they notice Jesus kind of get up from dinner thinking, man, does he need to go to the bathroom? Like, what's he up to? He takes off his outer garments and he puts on that towel and he starts pouring water into the basin. And, and you can almost, almost see like Peter's face in particular with just shock and horror, like just looking around like, what is he about to do here? Like, I'm sure it was dead quiet as, as Jesus gets down on his knees and begins to watch, wash each uh, of the disciples' feet. And, and yet the, the topic of conversation at this point in time is, is absolutely remarkable. If you look at the account of Luke in Luke 22, the topic of conversation at this point in time, the disciples were actually debating on who was the greatest. That's what's going on here in between verse 3 and 4. John doesn't include this here. But, but Luke is saying that they're in this all-out argument about who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Who, who's the greatest disciple? Who's the greatest follower? They're having this conversation, and Jesus rises from supper, assumes the role of a servant. It doesn't say this here, but he essentially is saying to the disciples, you want to know what greatness looks like? You want to know what, what it means to, to be the leader, to be the best? It means assuming the role of a servant. It means even though I've been given all things, even though I'm about to ascend back to the right hand of the Father with complete power and authority, what it means to be great means to give that up and to consider others more important than yourself. I mean, you can see the jaws just drop to the floor. Like this is, this is an unbelievable display of humility that is multi-layered in these first couple verses. Well, that's kind of on the surface, what we see kind of immediately, but there, there, there's another layer I want to go with what we see in this passage, and that's the cleansing that Jesus provides. It's the cleansing uh, Jesus provides. You, you get into this, and, and I said, I, I kind of picture this scene where it's like complete silence. Like, disciples are like looking around, like, are you kidding? Like, what's happening right now? Well, Peter's not quiet, of course. It says in verse 6, are you going to wash my feet, Jesus? 
You know, Jesus just expected Peter just to receive this washing in faith. And so Jesus says in verse 7, look, you're not going to understand this now. You're only going to understand this later. Like he's pointing out this disconnect that we'll unpack in a moment. And so, of course, Peter, so bold, you know, says to Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. You're never going to wash me. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And so then Peter, you know, poor, silly old Peter, always missing the point, he, he flips on the other side of the spectrum and says, okay, then wash my whole body, right? It totally is missing what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus then tries to kind of clear things up in verse 10, talking about the necessity of being washed and being cleansed, and yet Peter is just missing the point. What, what is Peter not understanding? Peter is misunderstanding this whole object lesson that Jesus is using. Peter thinks that the whole point of this whole like teaching is the physical washing that Jesus is doing and, and the whole sense of humiliation that Jesus is displaying. And he's not understanding what the physical washing symbolizes. So we've seen, we've seen mistakes throughout John's gospel of different people who, who interpret a spiritual truth in only physical terms. Like we saw this with the woman at the well who wasn't quite connecting with Jesus in the living water. Saw this with Nicodemus and, and being born again. Well, we're seeing this now with Peter who is falling into the same boat and he's, he's not making the, the spiritual connection of what Jesus is trying to say. See, again, this passage only makes sense in the shadow of the cross. That this washing that Jesus is doing, this cleansing that he's providing, this bath that he talks about in verse 10, ultimately, he's talking about the blood that he will spill on the cross that has the power to cleanse us in the most powerful and intimate, way, and, and intimate ways. And so the, the lesson that I think Jesus is trying to communicate is not just this example to follow in humility and service. But I think the main point of this passage is that Jesus provides a spiritual cleansing that all of us desperately need. And this spiritual cleansing, I think, is symbolized in Jesus' selfless, humble service in washing their feet. John, who obviously wrote this, he's writing about the, the blood of Jesus in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, says this about it. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And he says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I think we're seeing him wash the disciples' feet, pointing forward to that type of cleansing that he ultimately offers. I just love this scene. I love, you know, Jesus, you know, imagining him taking the sandals off the disciples' feet, making clean what was dirty. Because, look, ultimately, that is the stunning picture of what Jesus does for each one of us in the gospel. That as he cleans the dirt off their feet, because of the blood of Jesus that's poured out on us, Jesus cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. So this is the cleansing that Jesus provides. This is the, the great act of service. It's not just the towel and the basin, but ultimately it's the cross of Jesus. But that's not the only thing that we see. There's a third thing I want to point out this morning, and, and that is the, the attitude that Jesus expects. The, the attitude 
Okay, we've seen the humble service of washing feet. We've, we've seen Jesus kind of explain the significance of the real cleansing, which they're not going to understand until after Jesus dies and is resurrected. Well, now he's driving home the application point for his disciples in verses 12 through 20. Jesus begins in verse 12, and he starts by asking them a question, basically like, do you guys understand this? Do you guys, do you guys get what I'm talking about? And there's silence, like there's crickets. They're, they're still kind of not tracking here. So Jesus goes on and he explains what he's trying to do in verses 13 through 17. And Jesus essentially says that the world considers him, because he's the teacher, to be greater than the disciples. And yet Jesus says, look, to be great means to serve. It means to take on this posture of humility. And then he says, this is an example that I want you to imitate. I want you to go and do likewise. But let me just point out for us, like on this side of the cross in 2019, that, that this is a, a timeless biblical principle, but in this passage, it's being culturally expressed in the washing of feet. All right, now I, I grew up Grace Brethren, where we believe that one of the ordinances was, was, you know, washing each other's feet, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is instituting here in this passage. I think the, the timeless biblical principle is Jesus expects his followers to take on this posture and this attitude of humility and service in everything that we do, and that that will be expressed culturally in our context in all kinds of different ways, not just washing um, each other's feet. Now, where I find this challenging, especially as a guy who, you know, I've read this dozens of times, is that it, it feels so basic, doesn't it? Doesn't this feel like like Christianity 101, like if you've been in the church five minutes, you know that good Christians are supposed to serve others, right? And it's so easy just to say, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to serve others and walk away and just try to do that the best way that you can. And so I want to kind of challenge us this morning by saying, are you really serving others? Like, are you really counting others as more significant than yourself? Are you really displaying the kind of humility that Jesus is showing us here in this passage. So let me, let me drive that home this morning by, by challenging you in two ways. I'm going to put this in question form for us to, to kind of take that next step in applying this today. Here's the first question to consider. Is does, does the nature of your serving reveal that you truly understand the gospel? I'm going to try to connect the gospel to, to this idea of serving. But I first want to point out the hard reality, and that is, is that you don't get to choose if you're serving or not. Like, we're all serving somebody. You're either serving yourself or you're serving God in the way that you serve others. So, so we're, we're always serving someone's agenda, and yet it's only through the power of the gospel that frees us and empowers us to serve God and serve others in, in the way that we should. See, it's, it's in the gospel where, where Jesus, who takes our place on the cross, removes our sin, but also Jesus offers his perfect righteousness, his, his perfect obedience to the Father, that that now is transferred into your account if your faith is upon Jesus, 
And now God looks at you and he sees you completely hidden in Jesus. And so what that does is that frees us up from trying to serve others as a means to earning God's favor and approval. You don't have to do that anymore because you already have it fully in Jesus and that's never going to be taken away. And so the gospel frees you and empowers you to do this as you ought to. And look, consistent, humble, sacrificial service to others is the way that you display that you actually understand and believe in the gospel. That when you serve, that actually reveals that your faith is actually genuine. I want you to think about the, the person in your life that you would say, this person loves Jesus the, the most in my life. Like, like this person is so committed to the gospel. Don't you see that person always serving? Isn't the mission of that person, whoever you think about, isn't the mission of their life being a servant of all, right? Like that is the indispensable quality of a true Christian. They are loving others in their service and in their dying to self. And so conversely, if you flip that around, if you aren't consistently serving, if you're not making this a high priority, then you have to ask yourself the question, do you believe in the gospel? Is there, is there a disconnect between the gospel and your heart? Because it's the gospel that almost serves as like a key that, that unlocks the shackles of pride around our hearts that we can take off the pride and the self-sufficiency and now our hearts can be filled with humility and service to others. Why? Well, because at the heart of the gospel is God himself. And God, being the creator, is constantly serving his own creation. That's what we see Jesus doing here. And so if you claim to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, you will do the same. You will serve others. And that's going to show up in, in, in who you are at the workplace, who you are at home and in your relationships and, and with your kids and, and, and who you are in the neighborhood, even at church. There's nothing that's too low for you to do because you're dying to self. And so serving should reveal if you understand the gospel. I know it's a challenge, but here's something that's a little bit more challenging. We're going to talk about motives. Are your motives for serving shaped by the gospel? Okay, I know this is, this is a little bit more messy because of uh, the fact that motives, you, you know, like motives can't be seen. Like no one's checking in on your motives. No one's looking into the condition of your heart under the surface. And so this is where it, get, it gets really kind of tricky for us as believers because we can focus so much on like, what do I need to do? Like, like what do I need to go and, and accomplish? What, what box do I need to check and move on? And yet the reality is, is I think God might be more interested in what's going on under the surface in your heart, in your motives for doing what you need to do. And yet it's hard because no one's looking in. No one, you're not holding the door for someone on Sunday morning and people are like, oh, thanks for doing that. Hey, why did you do that for me? Like no one's asking you that, right? Like my mentor used to say that motives are, are like underwear where no one sees them, but it shapes everything that you do, right? It impacts everything. Right? And, and look, there are, just like underwear, there are good uh, motives and there are bad motives. All right? So let me talk just for a few moments about what, what are some examples of bad motives for serving others. Here's the first one is, is when your motivation is guilt. This is a big one, especially in church. Like, 
You serve because if you don't serve, you're going to feel bad about yourself. Like, oh man, like I didn't serve, I missed that opportunity. Like now I'm a bad Christian, a horrible Christian. And so I'm not going to miss the next one. I'm going to make sure I serve so I feel good about myself. That's a big uh, motivation that's not healthy. Secondly is legalism, where you say, God's going to love me more. God's going to maybe bless me. I've got this big business deal coming up this week. I'm going to serve and do what's right so that he'll, you know, he'll allow me to close the deal this week. Or I'm going to clean myself up because I've been sinning a lot in the way that I serve others. It's a bad motivation. Another one is obligation, where you feel like you're serving because you have to serve. Like someone asks you, and so you're just kind of gritting your teeth as uh, you serve. And then another one is, is having just a selfish agenda, right? I'm going to serve because this, this makes me look better. Like my image is improved here. I'm more spiritual. I'm more religious, you know, or, or maybe you serve somebody so that they're going to serve you in return, right? Spouses, this is a big one. Like I'm going to do A, B, and C, and so my spouse is going to do this, this, and that, right? Almost like someone is, is keeping score somehow. Like there's a, there's a scorecard, and I do these things, and so this person does that, and, and we're just going to move on and have a healthy, have a healthy marriage. Look, I, I just want to press in on these motives and just say motives absolutely matter. It, they are not just icing on the cake, but they shape and drive the quality of your service to others, and God looks at them. So, how do you know that your motives are gospel shaped? Well, here, here are a couple of examples. Number one, you know that your motives are gospel shaped if you are consistently taking initiative. All right, if you're not being asked to serve, but because you believe in the gospel, because of the example Jesus has set, your eyes are always up, you're always looking. What are some opportunities that I can die to self? How can I, how can I serve the, the people around me so that I can display the beauty uh, of Jesus? And that's what we see Jesus do here, right? Verse 4, no one asked Jesus to serve. No one, no one said, oh, Jesus, there's a need here. There's a lot of, you know, animal stuff and, and dirt and mud on our feet. Can, can you clean that up for us? Like, no, he, he saw the need and he stepped up and he took initiative, Look, if the only times that you serve in your life is when someone asks you to serve, that probably reveals that you have an underdeveloped quality of service in your life. And so people who are um, believing in the gospel, they take initiative. Secondly here, another characteristic is that you're serving in, in the ordinary moments of the day. Like you're not just serving in front of a big crowd or, or a big event. It's not just when you're having 20 people over at your house and you've got to be on, right? But it's also in the mundane moments, which is what we see here. They're, they're having dinner. You know, they're at, they're at a meal. They do this three times a day. And, and yet Jesus kind of steps up and he serves, displaying that nothing is below me. Another characteristic is that you're serving even when it's inconvenient, all right? E even when it's costly, even when you don't get anything in return, and just kind of a, maybe a small inconvenience, but at this time, maybe a, a bigger deal. Jesus had to get up from supper. They already had their positions, right? They were already starting to eat. I, I don't like eating cold food, you know? So I'm sure Jesus didn't either. And yet he took the time and he, and he washed all 12 of their feet. So are, are you serving when it's inconvenient, when it's not on your terms, 
when it wasn't scheduled in your calendar, and yet you still look at that opportunity and you say, I'm going to die to self even if this is costly. Last characteristic I'll point out is that you're serving even difficult people, right? I mean, Jesus is washing the feet of his betrayer. Doesn't get any more difficult than that. And, you know, it's somewhat easy for us to, to serve people we like or we enjoy, but if you're serving the people where it's hard to serve, it's hard to love, it's hard to be humble towards, that's displaying the reality that the gospel is shaping your motives. And look, the, the gospel is exactly what we need. The gospel is what creates this type of humility for us to die to self. This is what David Wells has to say. He says that humility has nothing to do with depreciating ourselves and our gifts in ways we know to be untrue. Even humble attitudes can be masks of pride. That humility is that freedom from ourself which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation and yet have joy and delights. It is the freedom, and here's the money sentence, it is the freedom of knowing that we are not in the center of the universe, not even in the center of our own private universe. Look, the reality is, is that in order to kick yourself off the throne of your heart, you have to rehearse the gospel. You have to feed your soul the reality of what Jesus has done for you. Die to self. Put King Jesus where he belongs in your life. Because the danger is, is that if you remain at the center of your existence, at the center of your universe, every time you serve, it's going to feel like a sacrifice. It's going to feel like you're giving up something, like you're missing out on something, like you're not advancing yourself. But if God is at the center of your universe, you're going to experience joy. You're going to experience delight. Here's why. Because in the gospel, you have forgiveness. You have full acceptance You've been adopted into God's family forever and ever. And what is most important in this life can never be taken away from you. And that creates a posture of spilling yourself in service to others again and again and again. Oh, how we, how we need the gospel to shape us. Can't forget that. Let us be people who are marked by the cross. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this challenging text. Lord, thank you for the example that we see Jesus display in just an amazing amount of humility. God, I pray that you would just continue to wow us and stun us with, with what Jesus consistently shows us. Lord, I pray that you would, um, Lord, shine a light in our hearts, even in this moment, of areas of our lives that we refuse to serve, refuse to die to self. God, we, we all have areas in which we're just too obsessed with our own kingdom. And so God, I pray that you would help us to die to self and put Jesus on the throne of our hearts. We pray in his name.